go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 7. Continue our journey through the book of Mark. And we're confronted today by the Lord and by the Holy Spirit in His Word with this concept of tradition. And really the idea of not so much about tradition in and of itself, but our human tendencies in what we often do with traditions. Uh, And so what's interesting this morning is that even though Jesus has been confronting different people at different times, he's been engaging with the Pharisees, or he's been talking to his disciples, or maybe even to the crowds, thousands of people. In today's experience with Jesus, in Mark's recording, he's talking to everybody. He's talking to all of these different people. And what's interesting is that they all suffer from the same issue is they think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Sometimes I suffer from that as well. Anybody amen in? Not yet? Okay. I'll try to give you a softball later that'll be a little nicer to you. But uh, we all have to admit that we do that, right? We give ourselves, we give human beings a little bit too much credit. And this is what Jesus points out in this whole passage is all about that. Verse 1 through 23. Jesus is pointing this out. And at the end of this passage, he kind of comes to this place where he's, he's, I don't think he's surprised because he's God, right? Nothing really surprises Jesus. But he's emphatic in the way that he addresses his disciples and the people that are around him. Because he wants to, he wants them to understand something very, very important. And he wants you to understand something very, very important today as well. So stay tuned in this morning as we open up God's Word. This morning's message is entitled, Washed in the Blood. may sound strange. Whenever I get blood on my hands, whether it's a bloody nose or I cut myself, the first thing I want to do is get it off, right? Get that blood off because it's sticky, right? It's messy. It's, it's gross. We don't like even the sight of blood. Any of you get queasy at the sight of blood? Yeah, me too. I, I, I can't stand it. It bothers me. What does it mean to be washed in the blood? It's kind of a graphic phrase, but there's an old hymn entitled, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? Because the Bible says the blood of Jesus, that is, the blood of Jesus as he was crucified on the cross, the death that he died for us, he died in our place, and it is a propitiation of God's wrath, Jesus dying in our place. He took death and sin upon himself on our behalf. And so he atoned for the sins of believers, for those who would believe in him, he atoned for our sins, he, he shed his blood. The Bible says there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. The Old Testament sacrifices were to point us to Jesus so that we could see what God was going to do through his son. And, and John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus on the scene, he says, look, the Lamb of God, pointing to the cross, God is going to provide his own Lamb His own sacrifice, unblemished, to pay for our sins. The only way that you or I can be saved from our sins is if we are washed, cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. And so even though we, if you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, you were baptized in water, that's significant, that baptism is significant of you're being buried with Christ in baptism, that you are basically being buried in, in his sacrifice, in his blood. Apart from him, we have no life in God. We have no relationship with God. We have no forgiveness of sin. There's no way God will look at us and call us righteous apart from 
the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we learned today. And this is what Jesus is going to get to. The, he's going to say to his audience, he's saying to us today, you've got to get this point. You've got to get this. This is one of the most important things, the most important thing to the gospel. And so let's read together starting in verse 1. The Bible says, And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. But the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Now verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And he was also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. And after he called the multitude to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And when leaving the multitude, he had entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, Deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we bow our heads, Lord, we may have come into this room knowing or, or, or thinking that we know what we need today. Thinking we know that we need a, a certain encouragement or challenge or word. Father, help us uh, to just be fully submitted to you right now. In these next moments, Father, especially as we hear from your word, that we would be prepared to expect the unexpected, that we would have a, an open heart and an open mind to you. God, speak to us by the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. 
that we would be changed today and be more like Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. A few things that Jesus points out, first of all, before he addresses his disciples and the crowd that had gathered around, he first engages with the Pharisees. Now, the, the Pharisees were one of the groups that were always concerned about cleanliness. The only other group that was more concerned with cleanliness than the Pharisees was a group called the Essenes. And most people believe that they, they were the ones who lived in the Qumran caves where they found the scrolls later on. And they were so concerned about cleanliness, they just, they moved out of town, okay? Uh, they, got, they got away and uh, even in the second, third, fourth century, we see other, we see other like desert monastic movements where people are like, the, the world is so evil, we got to get away from here. We got to get out of Rome. We got to get out of Paris. We got to get out of wherever it is. The Pharisees were, were second in line for that title. They cared extensively about cleanliness. They would have called it holiness. Being holy, being set apart. There are habits that God's people in Israel were to continue to cultivate so that they would be holy because God revealed himself as holy. His word is holy. His people are to be holy. But Jesus points out several things that they, that they did wrong in their pursuit of holiness. There are things that, there are errors that we can repeat today if we're not careful. And some of you may be repeating them right now. But it's definitely, these are definitely some traps that we fall into. The first one we see in verse 8, they neglected God's command. They neglected God's commandment. Now this is all where it really starts because this is not all that they do. There are a couple other things they do that lead up to their outright rejection of God's word. But if you'll notice, Mark writes that, and just to remind you of where we were last week, I just think this is comical. And I don't know if, if the Lord does this because he has a sense of humor or not. But if you remember from the last couple of weeks, what have the disciples not had an opportunity to do? You remember? Eat. Right? At this point, they've, they've stopped being Baptist and they've embraced another denomination. Right? You, you cannot keep them away from the table. No, they've, they've gone from place to place. They're looking for rest. They're looking for food. They go up on the mountainside, the hillside, and Jesus tells them, tell everybody to lie down on the grass, and he multiplies the bread and the fish. And so they have, a, they have plenty to eat then, but now they're publicly going out, and the Pharisees have come from Jerusalem, and the first thing they notice about Jesus and his disciples is not that they're casting out demons, not that they're healing people, not that they're doing all these good things, for the community, but what? They're eating with unclean hands. I remember as a kid, I was a country boy, East Texas. I spent all day, every day, if I wasn't in school, I was outside. I was not in the house. I was fishing, I was playing baseball, and I remember, if, especially if I had a good day of fishing, when I would hear the bell ring, because our pond was a little bit further away from the house, I'd hear that dinner bell ring. Man, man, I'm not finished, you know? Don't want to have to go home and then mom's like, wash your hands. Ah, that takes more time. They were so upset that the disciples were not observing the cleanliness laws that they come to Jesus. 
The one who has been healing people of leprosy, disease, they come to him with this question. Why do your disciples, why do your disciples, Rabbi from Nazareth, why do your people, why do those who follow you, why do they not observe the tradition of the elders? That was their question. That's what they wanted to know. Now, Mark tells us in verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. The word that's used there is a derivative of the word pugnacious. In 1 Timothy 3, 3, an elder is someone in the New Testament church, is someone who some of your Bibles might say a person who's not a brawler, someone who doesn't like to pick fights. This is just one of the many qualifications of an elder in the New Testament church. He should not be a person who is pugnacious, some of your Bibles might say. My New American Standard says that. The root word of that word pugnacious means someone who likes to go to fist with people. So this word that's used here in verse 3 literally is the word fist. They wash their hands with their fists. And scholars say it's the only time that it ever appears like this when it comes to cleanliness. They don't know how to make sense of it. But I think the best way to make sense of it is they were rigorous about washing their hands. You ever seen a doctor wash their hands? They wash their hands a little longer than I do. They wash all the way like up to their elbows, right? They were rigorous about this. But in their rigorous tradition, Jesus tells them, you have neglected the commandment of God in verse 8. See, you can be on fire for really good things, for really good reasons, and completely start to neglect the things that God really wants you to focus on in your life. You can do it well, better than anybody else. But if you're not paying attention to the most important things, especially God's Word, you will miss God's will for you and His design for you. So they neglected God's commandment. Now, notice what else the Bible says here in verse 4. It's specifically when they come from the marketplace. Because who's in the marketplace? It's not just your immediate family. It's all these strangers, right? It's all those people that during COVID, you're like, stay away from me. Put a mask on, right? Whatever. They come in from the marketplace. If these disciples were doing the will of Christ and they were going into marketplaces throughout the area. They were healing people. They were spending time with people who were unclean according to Judaistic principles. But he says in verse 4, there were many other things, listen to this, which they have received in order to observe. There was a rabbinical tradition. When a rabbi taught, is, taught their students, they, whatever they received from their teacher, or in this case, in the synagogue, from the elders, whatever they received from the elders, it was presupposed, it was assumed that whatever teaching they received, they would put into practice. Matter of fact, what, what the Apostle Paul 
tells Timothy and Titus as he prepares them for the ministry and encourages them. It's also what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 15, uh, 1. As a matter of fact, the same word is used, par elabon, to receive. Paul says, I deliver to you, he says to the the church in 1 Corinthians 15, I deliver to you as of first primary importance what I also what? Received. And then he explains the gospel. This is priority, it's number one. To share what you've received, to pass it on. And so we had this culture in Jesus' time of obsessive holiness, cleanliness, laws. And it wasn't just something that the Pharisees practiced, all of their people. It was a culture. So Jesus has this group of disciples who have their own different culture within this greater culture of Phariseeism and Judaism and they clash. But here's the issue. Both groups claim to be operating on the word of God. They claim to be operating under the authority of God the Father. And this is where Jesus says, I'm not going to let this one go. Because the word of the Father is at stake. Now it's not as though tradition is bad. Jesus is not going to, sometimes this is taught and preached and we, we kind of misunderstand what's going on here because Jesus is not saying that tradition is bad. If that were the case, then Paul would never say to the church in Corinth, hey, you need to follow my example. I'm going to deliver to you, I have delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. You are to do the same thing. You are to deliver to others as a first importance what you also received. We wouldn't have that tradition in the early church. So Jesus is not preaching or teaching against tradition. There are traditions I love. Am I right? How many of you commute to work on that road that will remain nameless? Yeah? Aren't you glad people drive on the right-hand side of the road every day of the week? How would you like to get up on Thursday and drive out and everybody changed it and they didn't tell you? That wouldn't be fun. You'd be like, am I in Great Britain or something? Right? Am I in Europe? I like that tradition. There are lots of traditions that we like just in society and then also as a church and maybe in your family you have traditions that are good and they're good. Tradition's not bad. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that when you start to neglect the word of God, the traditions of God and what God has passed down, when you start to neglect those things, you're not going in the right direction. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just neglect as he goes on. But secondly, they go from neglect, that is not spending as much time in God's word. Now they get to the place where they're setting God's commandment aside. Do you notice that? So in verse 8, he tells us they've neglected the commandment of God. And then in verse 9, he says, you nicely set aside or cleverly set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Now he goes a little bit further, doesn't he? From neglect to setting aside. One scholar says that this could maybe even be more properly interpreted in the English to say they just, they just rejected it. They just rejected it. 
How do you reject something? You, you choose something else in lieu of that thing you should have chosen, right? Again, we see this in the writings of Paul. In Romans 9. Now, this setting aside cannot be attributed to mere ignorance. Neglect, maybe, but not setting aside. Setting aside something is intentional. It's active. We know what we're doing when we do that. They preferred something else. Maybe something they thought would be more powerful, more relevant, more progressive. If it gets us to where we really think God wants us to go and His Word is just simply not getting it done, maybe if we use this other thing and incorporate it and set God's Word aside, maybe it'll get us where we think God wants us to go. Now Paul uses the same language in Romans chapter 9. And in verse 21, when he talks about how sovereign God is and the way God sovereignly works, he uses this language of menial or common use and honorable use. Like there are things in your house that you use for common things and there are things in your house that you use for honorable things. He says, does not the potter have a right over the clay that is the creator to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Now the answer in this case in Romans uh, chapter 9 would be yes. Yes, the potter, especially if you're talking about God, the potter has a right over the clay. Right? He's sovereign. He's the creator. He's the one that created the clay out of nothing. So, can God do this? Yes. Because God is the subject and He is sovereign over all He creates. He's the one performing the action and He's sovereign. However, people don't have the same sovereign prerogative to set aside the Word of God or to set aside anything that God has called holy for common use in favor of human traditions. Or philosophies, human philosophies, a, a certain way of thinking. We are in a terrible state when we begin to do this. To choose to take the commandment of God and say, I get it, but it's not getting it done. I'm going to pick it up, set it aside, and I'm going to put something else in its place. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, who were the MVPs for holiness, he said, you've neglected God's word and that led to your setting aside of God's word. And church, listen to me. If our understanding of God's mission and the Great Commission and what it means to make disciples and plant churches and share the gospel around the world, if it requires us to innovate in such a way that would set aside God's commandments, we have misunderstood the mission altogether. And sometimes that's the, there's a draw for us in our love for the lost and what we see going on in the world and we go, how in the world are people going to come to Christ? We have to do something differently. We have to maybe innovate. Soften the gospel a little bit. 
Make it a little less mysterious or whatever. Don't do it. And then thirdly, that led to them invalidating God's word. He says in verse 13 as we read down. Now he says in verse 10, he reminds them of what God's commandment actually was. What God actually said. He just gives us as an example, right? Because he says, and they do this with a lot of things, right? In verse 4 and 5, he's like, they do this stuff with a lot of things. And then Jesus comes in and says, here's an example of one of the ways you have neglected, set aside, and now invalidated God's word. Here's an example. Here's a place where God's word says, honor your father and mother. This is serious. Honor your father and your mother. Respect them. Revere them. God's word is very clear. But then he says in verse 11, but you say, but you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corbin, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. So Jesus is interpreting and he's showing to them, because they're not being straightforward, he's showing them what the conclusion, what the end result is of their neglecting God's word. He's saying the end result by your neglecting God's word and setting it aside is you end up invalidating it. But you're not honest with people. You don't show them the end result. And so they feel like they're doing what God wants them to do, but you and I both know they're not. So here's an example, this idea of Corbin. In James Edwards' commentary, he gives a little bit of a clarification of what this means from the Hebrew word for offering. It was a rabbinic custom a custom of the rabbis, derived from the practice of devoting particular goods that you owned to the Lord as, spe- as specified in Leviticus 27, 28 and Numbers 18, 14. He goes on to talk about the Mishnah and the Mishnah was considered the oral traditions of Israel. So the Jews and in Judaistic culture you didn't just have the law of God from Moses, given to Moses on Mount Sinai and the Torah. You also had in their tradition, not in the biblical tradition, the Mishnah, which was the oral tradition, the interpretive tradition that filtered down into the rabbis, into the synagogues in the first century where Jesus and when Jesus was ministering here. But he says... The Mishnah develops the general policy of devoting specific goods to the Lord into an elaborate panoply of rulings and regulations. Corbin was similar to the concept of deferred giving. Today, a person may will a property to a charity or institution at his or her death, though retaining possession, he says, over the property and the proceeds or interest accruing from it until then. In the case of Corbin, Edwards writes, a person could dedicate goods to God and withdraw them from ordinary use, although retaining control over them himself. See how they just weave their their way through all this? You can dedicate all your property. If you dedicate all your property to the Lord, then you don't have to 
you, you don't have to do all the, you don't have to face all these other financial issues. You don't have to take care of your parents. You don't have to pay for this. You don't have to pay for this. Just say that it's Corbin to the Lord and you can still live with it. And then when you die, it goes to the priest. Now, if there's something also, if there's something if you, you've dedicated, right, through Corbin, say this is to God, this is to the priest, upon my death and you decide you want to take it out, you can, but you've got to give the priest 50 shekels to do it. See how this works? So they have this system set up. Therefore, the practice of Corbin in Israel during Jesus' ministry invalidated God's command to honor one's father and mother. It was a yeah, but scenario. Yes, the commandment says this, but the oral tradition under Corbin says this. There's a way out. There's a way around it. Jesus says to these Pharisees who come to him are like, why do they not observe the traditions of the elders? Jesus says, here's why. Because your traditions, your traditions set aside the very commandment of God. Nothing wrong with tradition. But when your tradition does that, we have a problem. Now, Christian creeds and confessions are careful not to make the same mistake as the oral traditions in the Mishnah. They do not reinterpret the Bible or offer caveats that undermine the Bible's authority. Rather, Christian creeds and confessions seek to articulate biblical doctrine as it appears in the original text. We have them because even though the Bible is sufficient and authoritative for all teaching in life, simply saying that the Bible is sufficient is not sufficient we have to we've had to throughout history clarify things what do we mean when we say Jesus is the monogenes the only begotten son of God there's no one else what do we mean when we say salvation is only through him and by his atoning work on the cross we've had to clarify what we mean by these things but we never invalidate God's word. We never set it aside. We never set anything else over it. We don't have an interpretive tool through which to view the scripture so that it becomes authoritative. This is what the Mormons do. The Jehovah's Witnesses do. They have other texts. They have magazines. They have the word of an elder or an apostle or someone with some type of authority who says, yeah, the scripture, yes, you need the Bible, but you need an interpretive lens. You need a screen through which to see it and really understand it for what it really means. We don't believe that as Christians. In our creeds and our confessions, they don't say those things. They don't, they don't operate as a screen for us. So, how do we apply some of, these, some of these issues, some of these principles? How do you handle God's word every day? As, as a person who has received it from others, who have been truthful and honest 
and acted in integrity to give you the word of God that you have today? How do you handle it every day? Is it a springboard for something more palatable? Would you describe it as an anchor that grounds you but isn't seen or experienced every day? It's something that's tucked away? Or is it daily food? Nourishment for your soul? Brothers and sisters, be careful that it does not become less than daily food. Be careful that the word of God, the commandment of God does not become something secondary or tertiary in your life. Or something that has to be interpreted through some kind of cultural lens or philosophical lens or religious lens. Be careful that it does not become anything less than daily food because if it does, it will quickly fade into the background and become a thing that you neglected, then a thing that you set aside then ultimately something that you have invalidated altogether by what you believe and the way that you live. And then finally, Jesus gets to the place where he addresses everybody, not just the Pharisees. In verse 17, he leaves the multitude, he entered in the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable, now he focuses on his disciples. Verse 18, he asks, he asks them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because why? It does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Now Jesus draws a comparison, the things that are outside of the person and the things that are inside of a person. Do you see that here? And the problem of elimination. This is the problem. He says, here's the issue. Here's the difference. Anything that enters into your body, germs, food, whatever, not to be too graphic here. It's okay, we're meeting in the elementary school cafeteria. There's a lot of nasty stuff that happens here all the time. But he just basically says, whatever enters into your body, we know this, it comes out. It's eliminated. It's gone. You get a virus, you get over it. You get a cold, you get over it. You ate something bad, you get over it. You ate something unclean. It comes out of you. Eventually, sin doesn't. Sin doesn't get eliminated by washing your hands, by using Germex. Doesn't happen that way. Sin is never eliminated this side of eternity. You will always struggle with it. You will always battle it. In verse 20 through 21, he compares the stuff that enters into the body. Whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it is not going to his heart, into his stomach, and it is eliminated. Verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, 
That is what defiles him. The stuff that comes in, it leaves. But within every human being, there is a flowing procession of sin. Constantly. In our minds, in our hearts. It is a flow. It is an ongoing flow. And Christian brother and sister, I know you are beset by it and you are tired of it and you are sick of it, just like I am. We must do battle with it. What can address this issue? It's not cleanliness. It's not washing your hands vigorously. It's not observing all of these laws. Wash all your pots and pans. Make sure you don't go here. Uh, don't go into the marketplace at certain times. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. These things that Paul had to deal with in the New Testament church. What can address the problem of flowing sin in our life? This is the question Jesus raises in this passage. This is what it's all about. It's not about tradition. Tradition bad. Jesus good. No. It's about that question. What can address the issue that not only the Pharisees had, not only the crowds had, but he notices here and he points out to his disciples that even his followers, closest ones, had. Jesus confronts in this passage our human tendency to take what God has clearly communicated to us in his word and distort it for our own personal ends. He challenges some of the most reputable and holy men in Judea in the first century, the Pharisees. He showed them and us today that true holiness in God's sight is not based on what a person takes into their body as much as what flows out of their heart. Sin, unlike dirt and germs, is unavoidable for the human being because it resides within it lives within us. It's not outside of us. It's within us. We are born into sin regardless of where we live or what kind of conditions surround us. It has affected us all. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John 1.9 says that if we say we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. We are deceiving ourselves. Sin is a universal problem and it is deep. It's not epidermal. It does not reside on the surface of our skin so that we can rinse it off or even, in the case of the Pharisees, scrub it off vigorously and religiously. It is soul deep. Oh, but it can be washed away. And that's what Jesus is putting across to his listeners in this passage and to you and to me today. You can be cleansed of your sin and be made holy. Though your sin dwells within, you cannot look within and find a cure. That's what they tell us today, right? Just be true to yourself, man. Look within. You've got it. It's in there. Well, I've looked in mine and I, 
I don't see salvation. I see more sin. Many people will try to convince you that you need only to be true to yourself and look within. There's scores of people in this world. Jesus says the, the gate is wide. The path is wide. Scores of people in this world who are hell-bound with hearts full of self-confidence. We drink it in every day. We listen to podcasts and we watch TV shows to boost our what? Our self-confidence. Sometimes that can be good. You just think really wrongly of yourself. But don't be one of these people who trade confidence in Christ for confidence in yourself. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. The one who bore your sins on the cross. The one whose blood was shed for you. What can address the problem of flowing sin? See, it's not just a small reservoir. And at one point in our life when we call upon the name of the Lord and we're baptized that it goes away. No, it's a flowing well. What can address it? Who can reach past the surface into the soul where the fountain of sin wells up? His name is Jesus. And this is what he's saying in this passage to everyone who would hear him. Your problem is deep. But the Father has sent me to deal with it. In Christ there is another fountain that is unending. And its waves and its currents overwhelm the little rivulets of sin which spring from your soul. The old hymn says there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged Beneath that flood lose all, how many? All, say it with me, all their guilty stains. Another old hymn, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? You can be forgiven for all of your sins, past, present, future, through His blood, but only through His blood. There is no other way be saved except through Jesus have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power the old hymn says are you washed in the blood of the lamb are you fully trusting in his grace this hour are you washed in the blood of the lamb oh be washed in the blood of the lamb